welcome to Two Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany, and all without ever saying the word efficient or organised. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com, and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox, who is currently powered exclusively by tea and corny bars. <laughs> so Simon, how are you? Uh, I'm doing well. I, as you say, I'm powered by tea, uh, and yeah surviving uh thriving as much as possible uh in lockdown light um and yeah corny bars are indeed a a wonderful treat uh in these trying times (laughs) and describe to the listeners what on earth a corny bar is so i mean a corny is just one brand in particular uh every supermarket will have their own in-house brand and i'm sure there's there's competitors out there in the german market but corny is basically a, a chewy uh, muesli bar. They do also do hard crunch ones, um, nut explosion uh, type things. Uh, but I'm really all about the uh, basically it's the chocolate banana one. Oh yes, um, that I'm really really deep in. Um, it's a challenging thing because obviously it's a, it's not a real banana flavour. It's very much that uh, synthetic stuff. Um, and there's one thing in the world that my wife hates, uh, and it's bananas, and it's literally my favourite fruit. Um, so I'm kind of like eating these bars like two at a time, uh, and then she's just disgusted by me uh, for the haste in which I'm eating these bars and the fact that I then reek of synthetic banana. <laughs> I feel though that <laughs> that you've you missed a trick because surely the best uh, treat in Germany is the the Milchschnitter from uh, Kinder. That's one of the finest Ooh. pieces of uh, confectionery I've ever come across. That is a, a superb thing. Um, it's one of those things I had a lot when I was young. Like whenever we went to the supermarket here, I'd get a milkshiner at the end, like for behaving. Um, <laughs> and I kind Good of forgot motivation. about them. Exactly. Yeah. That's why I was quite a chubby kid. And um, it wasn't until I came back and then I saw them and I was like, oh my God those still exist uh, and then yeah naturally bought a five pack and ate it in like a matter of minutes um so if you i mean if you like the milkshake to have you tried the kinder penguin i haven't no what is that your eyes lit up for it's a shame this is an audio experience because the listeners have really missed out on your eyes there oh. uh, a penguin is basically the next level up uh, for a milkshake so you've got the same milk filling uh, encased in chocolate uh, with a chocolate sort of really thin wafer running through the middle. It is, uh, it's mm. lovely. They also do ones filled with raspberry jam uh, in the middle as well. Um, yeah, if you like Kinder, you're going to like Penguin. I just Googled it and I think I'm going to cry. <laughs> they do like a, an, a, a good 12-pack of them, I think, are available at oh any good, good supermarket. God. See, the worst of this is I've, I've given up sugar in lockdown because, I, yeah. Because you're a sadist. That's It's really a brave, brave move. I doth the cap, but... Boy, I couldn't do that. I, I stopped. I've stopped drinking and I've stopped eating um, sugar. So Christmas is going to be pretty impressive because <laughs> I'm just going to go back on all the things I shouldn't do. I'm just going to have like digestive problems and be totally hammered all the time. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of lockdown, obviously we're in lockdown light. Um, it's not as good as lockdown gold that we had in March. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've got this terrible fear that I'm losing my German. Because I'm speaking, I speak English for work. I've got my daughter, who's only eight months now, and I'm 
having to speak English to her so that she will learn English. I'm totally terrified about losing my German skills. Uh, is this something that concerns you at the moment? Or? It doesn't concern me at the moment, to be honest. I feel like my German is pretty deeply ingrained in me now. But it did, this, this very thing happened to me. Yeah, I was born here, spent a long time here, and I studied German at school all the way to A-level. Um, so 18 didn't do very well at A-level. My German wasn't fantastic uh, because of my reluctance to learn the technicalities and the grammar. Um, but then I didn't use it for seven years. I, I learned some other languages along the way. I learned a bit of Spanish uh, to go traveling with. And then I came back to Germany and I was, I was kind of thinking, oh, it will kick in. Uh, I'll remember this. Uh, it'll all come flooding back to me. And it took months uh, until I felt even vaguely comfortable with just the, <laughs> the sort of polite sentences of a day. And then I realized that the only word that I was really, really confident in was Fledermaus, uh, which is my all-time favorite German word. Quite specific, um, though. <laughs> yeah, it is. But it's also a wonderful um, demonstration of how the German language works, I think. I mean, you look at the name in English, bat, uh, for our listeners. If you had to describe what a bat was to someone, you would probably end up saying it's a flying mouse. Uh, and that is quite literally what flayed a mouse means. Uh, so I like the practicality. Yeah, I, I am a big fan of that. So yeah, and I like the idea of flayed a mouse man, even though that's not what they call Batman. Yeah, it's a shame that they didn't take take that opportunity to give a much more <laughs> exciting name. Yeah, I mean, I, basically, I, I, we went for a walk the other day, and, and I said to my wife, uh, you need to speak German. What My wife's terrible at, she'll speak German, and then she'll switch to English, and then speak German again. Mm -hmm. And for a, like a language learner, that's like horrendous, you know? Just like stick to one and go with it. And, and so we spoke German, and you know what? I was like, yeah, I'm ace in this. Understood everything she said. Uh, she she likes to use complicated words. She's a teacher, mm -hmm. so she likes to sort of challenge me. And I was doing fine, great. Confidence was up. And then we met one of one of my wife's friends uh, by chance, who's a doctor. And she just started talking. And I was like, oh, right, no, I don't understand anything that you've said. You, every <laughs> word that you've used, she asked me a question. And I was just like, none of those words are words that I've learned. Like, where, is there a special book that I need to get? Is this like C1 level maybe? So it was like instant, instant sort of drop drop of confidence. But you've just got to keep keep trying, haven't you? you? You do have a slightly more challenging style of German at home available. The word that's often used is Hochdeutsch uh, for sort of the clean, the, the German version of BBC English. And uh, your wife has, has a dialect and comes from a, a sort of a, a proud heritage of not speaking that way of Hochdeutsch. When I first met your wife and her family, I was also pretty perplexed by the sort of some of the phrases I heard going back and forth. Schwabisch is the challenge. It is. It is. It's really, it's a different language from what I had become familiar with uh, even living in Bavaria now I, when I hear it it's like well that's, that's there's something different there uh, I'm lucky that uh, well I say I'm lucky that my wife comes from Nordrhein-Westfalen and there they speak pot uh, is their local dialect which is basically quite an anglicized version of German and I love it it's great it's really helpful so instead of um, was is das where it's all s's it'd be wat is dat um, which is really close to what is that. Uh, so basically, if you just speak like really bad, like drunken style English, there's a good, good chance of coming across like a bit of a native up there. German Village rescues historical church 
by moving it. Many churches in Germany are being abandoned, congregations are shrinking, but one village in the Harz Mountains is bucking the trend. This is an article from deutschewelle.com or dw.com. And it's a, it's a funny story. Um, it's about a, a stave church in, yeah, in the, in the Harz uh, Mountain region uh, that is, they're going to deconstruct and rebuild in the, in the village centre. First most important question I've reckoned here is, what's a stave church? <laughs> do, you know, <laughs> do you happen to know what a stave church is? It's one of those things I'm pr- I, I felt when I read it, I was like, that feels familiar to me. I think my mum has told me about stave churches, um, but that could just be me lying to myself. I definitely couldn't describe the difference between a stave church and any other type of church. Um, luckily, the article does give a pretty decent definition, which I've highlighted for my own benefits. Uh, so I can say that uh, stave churches are wooden buildings with roofs that rest on load-bearing wooden columns or staves. So there's the, there's the clue right there. Um, while there are common sites in Scandinavia, uh, they are rare in Germany. So I guess that's why uh, this is getting all the extra attention of DW.com. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it, they're pretty impressive buildings when you see them. They're, these, they're usually labelled as Viking churches, uh, but they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're fully wood churches that built in the medieval era. Actually, though, this isn't a medieval church. This is quite a recent, a recent build. I think it was built in the 19th century. Uh, 115 years ago. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's a funny story because the church was built uh, to uh, accommodate patients from uh, a sanatorium for lung diseases, tuberculosis and, and such. And so obviously with a disease like tuberculosis that, that, that spreads quite rapidly, they, they put it in the woods. And over the last 115 years, the church has slowly begun to, to sort of fall apart. Uh, it was used as a hospital. Um, it was um, a rehabilitation clinic. It's uh, so it has been used um, up until sort of the, the, the mid nineties. But looking at the images from the the article, it, it looks like it's it's really fallen into disrepair. But it's a example, I think, of of German community organization because the community itself has raised quite an astronomical sum when you think about it. Somewhere like, yeah, 1.1 million euros. And for our American audience, just in case we have like one person in America listening, $1.3 million (laughs) uh, in order to renovate the church. And most of that has been uh, raised locally, but also from the Braunschweig Cultural Foundation, Hartzbank, the the state itself, Saxony-Anhalt and the German Foundation for Monument Protection. So yeah, uh, community organization is alive and well in, in Germany. Is that, is that something you've come across before? Uh, have you seen a lot of this in, in Germany? One of the things I discovered when I first moved here was that the fire brigades in the majority of villages and small communities were, yeah, were run by that community. And obviously they got funding and equipment from the state and the federal government, but it kind of blew my mind that in every village, like if you were a, a, a fit and healthy person, there was a really good chance you were going to be a fireman as well. And it's one of those careers that in England, at least, you kind of imagine it as a real sort of speciality thing. Whereas here, it's just part and parcel of that sort of agricultural life that's so key to this uh, area. Um, and when I think of community it's sort of in, in northern Germany, it's definitely different. Um, but I think there's a lot stronger sense of sort of identity 
uh, with where you're from. And it can be as simple as a football club that you support. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the community I've seen down here is, is much more sort of localized. Uh, and yeah, it's really impressive. I didn't see much of that growing up in the UK. The community organization I usually you usually hear about, certainly in the northeast of England, is to do with like food banks mm. and uh, sort of subsistence. Whereas this is a very different story about about recovering or or rebuilding part of the cultural heritage of the area. And it, it reminds me a lot of of what you see in a lot of Bavarian villages. I can't obviously speak for for the north um, so much, but um, in, in in Bavaria, the villages, a lot of the villages have had these little community projects where they've raised money to build a fountain, or they've raised money to re renovate the the town center, the market town. Um, my wife's small town is a good example. Um, her parents actually raised a lot of money to build a community shop within their, their village. So there's a lot of this community organization happening. Um, a lot of people with uh, a desire to improve their surroundings by by actually getting involved. But I also think it has something to do with free time. When you look at the image as well, there's a lot of people who are clearly over, over the retirement age. So people who maybe have retired and they're looking for something to do and something to sort of get on with. Um, and that's that's great. I think it's fantastic. I think you do see a lot of activism uh, in the older generation here. Um, all the retired people I know are super active and proactive in, in community things, whether it be local events or fundraising or whatever. But I mean, I, all the retired people in my family, they retired and just kind of sat around and, and did nothing. Like, there wasn't much traveling, there wasn't much going to church, didn't happen very much. So I think, yeah, it was, it was different. Uh, back home in my family. So yeah, res respect. I, th I did think it was funny though, because when you think about churches being renovated in the UK, and it, I'm always wary about making comparisons, but most of the churches you see renovated in the UK become sort of homes. Like <laughs> exactly. Like they'll renovate a church <laughs> and then sell it for uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands because it's some now beautiful country house or country apartment or something like this. And so it's nice to read a story where they're like, we're going to rebuild this church and then we're going to, we're going to dismantle it and rebuild it in the town center. And it's going to be a church. Although it, I like the idea. There's a little bit of rivalry because there's already a church in the town center. So you're going to have the, the gang who go to the stave church, you know? And I love the fact that in this article, the quote that I enjoyed the most was I'm not a member of the church, uh, but it's good that I can still advocate for such a sacred building. Um, and of course, that's another key difference in Germany. Uh, being a member of the church is a far more significant deal because it's financial as well. Um, when you, um, yeah, when you're part of a church, you pay taxes towards that church, so it is something you're reminded of every single year. Uh, even if you haven't gone to church, you are paying for that privilege. Um, so it's a, it's a far more interactive thing, uh, I think. And just the nature of, I mean, yeah, Church of England against like Catholics and Protestants here, like there's more of a, a mishmash where almost everyone I knew was Church of England because I went to a Church of England school. Uh, I think we had one Catholic guy uh, and, a, and a few guys from uh, the Muslim faith. And yeah, they weren't, they were catered for, they were given services, but obviously the, the, the money was coming from the Church of England for my school. So yeah. I, th I think my religion ends with like, 
the last time I went to church was, I think the last time I went to church was, was when I got married. So that's a long time. And, and I did promise to raise my child in the Catholic faith. And I think, I think I might break that. So don't tell, don't tell the Pope. Uh, anyway. So this is an article from Tagesspiegel, uh, and the headline is Warum ein Verbot von privaten Feuerwerk sinnvoll wäre? Ein gutes Feuerwerk kann unvergesslich sein, privates Feuerwerk ist vor allem stressig für Mitbürger und für Natur und Tierwelt. So, yeah, there was a word that sounds pretty similar to the English there. Feuerwerk is firework. So this is the, the main focus of this article, the German obsession with fireworks uh, at what they call Sylvester, what we would call New Year's Eve. Uh, it is a real bonanza of explosions here. Uh, what's been your experience of it, Nick? Oh, God, uh, it's, it's a funny one. The, the first time I celebrated Sylvester New Year in, in, in not the Sylvester New Year is the same. The first time I celebrated New Year in, in, in Germany was in Stuttgart. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. I expected to get drunk and have a good time. Um, and then everyone around about just before 12 o'clock was like, right, we've got to go into the city center. And I was like, yeah, four sheets to the wind. So I was like, yeah, let's <laughs> do this. Let's go. Everyone gets the coats on. And then it's just a box of fireworks <laughs> and people were just <laughs> dipping their hands in. And I was like, okay, this is a little bit unnerving. And then the door opened and I basically walked into a war zone. There's fireworks going off everywhere. People throwing bangers at each other. Someone threw a banger at me. I had to kick it across the street because it was like right at my foot. It was, and I was just like, this is insane. And then we got into the center of Stuttgart and it was just absolute bedlam. Uh, really incredibly drunk people with um, bottle rocket fireworks holding the stick and then lighting the mm -hmm. firework and the fireworks shooting off into the into the sky didn't seem to be any police around didn't seem to be anyone sort of organizing it which is far removed from the british experience which is you turn up uh, to a designated place at a designated time uh, <laughs> and then you watch a firework display that's been carefully organized and following all the safety procedures it usually lasts about 10 minutes and then you go back to the pub or go home or whatever it is that you want to do. So yeah, it's a very, very different experience. What about you? What's your experience of, of New Year, Sylvester in uh, in Germany? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm hung up on the word display and that really is the key thing, isn't it? Um, shout out to Homebrew St. Mary fireworks team. Uh, when I was growing up, we were really lucky in my village. We had, I think it was the Lions Society funded a really, really impressive narrative like story-driven firework display that was top class. Um, and that was how it was uh, in Surrey. Uh, almost every village had a really, really good fireworks display. And so, yeah, around the 5th of November, it was fantastic um, going from, yeah, event to event. Whereas here, as you say, uh, it is just madness. Uh, the general consensus seems to be abuse uh, as opposed to anything else. Uh, it reminded me of, I spent New Year's Eve uh, in um, in Peru um, a few years ago, and there the children did this. They ran around firing rockets at everyone, but it was exclusively children, like young, young children. And so you kind of think, pesky little bastards, but this is the one night of the year where you can cut loose. 
Um, but I say here in Germany, it's, it's it's everyone. It doesn't matter how old you are, how mature you are. It seems to be we're allowed to do this now, and my God, we're going to do this. Uh, firing them from your teeth, doing all the things that you're told not to do. Um, growing up with like more regular firework offerings, yeah, it's 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 terrifying. Uh, I don't play with fire. I just don't. Um, I, I shared a room with a guy who, as a child, had had a really uh, nasty uh, experience with, with fire and his shirt caught on fire. And he was all scar tissue and was going through surgeries to, to fix it. So I was, I was very aware of the damage that negligence can have. Um, so, yeah, it's not my game at all. And one year, my wife and I, uh, we were dating and it was all very romantic. We'd had a lovely Christmas together. I'd met her family and we walked down to the river. Uh, here in Nuremberg and we went to near our favorite spot which is one of the bridges called the Henkersteg uh, the Hangman Bridge and it's a beautiful wooden bridge over the river it's super picturesque and then for an hour it was just it felt like a war zone and it didn't feel safe at all um, you saw people firing things at each other and it's just like I'm out like if if I do need the emergency services, they're not going to be available. Because they're, they're looking after everybody else, right? Yeah. What I find so, so bizarre about the ritual of fireworks at New Year in Germany is how, as a kid, like generations of British kids have been scared shitless basically by advertising about not using fireworks i remember distinctly for through primary school the police a policeman would come and show us just a harrowing video about what would happen if you play with fireworks you know you shouldn't play with fireworks You'd show you pictures of people with like missing fingers and 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 i was literally scared straight essentially scared it was like the, that was the tactic was scare the <laughs> shit out of these little kids and they'll never play with fireworks and it worked for me certainly um and so that was a big thing and then as i got older I, as I, I went to work in a supermarket and and um for my sins I, I was put on security and one of the jobs in security was to secure the fireworks and the firework delivery it was like Fort Knox, right? So the firework would de delivery would come, would have a checklist for exactly the amount of fireworks and no, no more. Mm -hmm. And then we'd get the fireworks and we'd have to lock them in a protective cage in the warehouse until I think it was like four or five days before uh, the big fireworks displays usually happen on the 5th of November in, in Britain for, for Guy Fawkes night. But we have them at, at New Year as well. But then we'd have to take the fireworks um, under guard, essentially, you'd get three or four people and you'd have to walk them through the shop on a pallet and then you would put them in a locked cabinet uh, that was monitored by several security cameras and you bought your fireworks and you signed a sheet. You had to sign your address. Oh, wow. okay. it. Yeah, you had to do all of that stuff. And it was really, and this is in Scotland, so I'm not sure if the rules are different, but there was a, there was a hell of a lot of protection about who could get fireworks. Contrast that with my first new year in, in Germany and... I go into a shop and there's just an open basket in the middle of the shop with like fireworks in it. And I'm like, is there any security? Well, obviously it's, there's no security, so I can just buy any of these? Oh, okay, I'll just buy like some and then just let them off. And it was just so incongruous. It's, it made no sense to me that in Britain we had all these safety restrictions and all these rules. And then in Germany it was just like, yeah, do what you want. Here, have a banger. Throw it at that guy over there. You know, <laughs> just like, what is this all about? It kind of flies in the face of every stereotype we imagine. I think most people imagine, I mean, yeah, we hear all the time that Germans are sort of 
not much fun or whatever. But yeah, they have Carnival and go crazy. They have Oktoberfest and go crazy. They have Sylvester and go crazy. Get on the autobahn and go crazy. <laughs> Their year is peppered by cutting loose. Yeah. Uh, it's vital, that balance. Um, you need to get a, get that stuff out of your system every now and again with the seasons. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's awful because it ends up, because there's no designation about where this happens or doesn't happen, we live just around the corner from a square that is a pretty safe place to do fireworks from. It had just been renovated last year, so it's all nice, clean stone, everything's lovely. And the day after uh, New Year, everything was like scorch marks and burnt, and it took the, t- the city maybe five days before all the, the remnants of cardboard housings and paper and plastic tubes was finally gone. Um, but it's just every German city, every German community has this problem of just everyone just leaving just tons of cardboard waste behind. And and then, of course, the hospitals are really overburdened by people with burns and uh, all sorts of injuries that come off it. Yeah, I've seen three different fires um, on New Year's Eve up in Essen for people like firing them into bins and wheelie bins going up. Yeah, it, it doesn't make much sense. Well, I think, I think Berlin at the moment is considering banning them or restricting the areas where you can use them or... Um, or maybe both. Uh, there's a lot of people who would agree with it, but there's like anything. There's a lot of people who are like, "This is my personal right to," and, and it's funny. It's funny that there's there's so many Germans you speak to, and 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 I feel like it's the same. They'll, they'll look at America and go, "Oh, America and firearms," and then you give them a firework, and they're like, "Yeah, that's this is my personal right to have a firework." And you're like, "Hang on a second, this just totally doesn't make any sense." But yeah, there's I think there's a lot of people who who especially pet owners who really hate fireworks. I mean, it, I guess it might come down to the concept of, of safety and insurance as well playing a part in this. Because, of course, in Germany, you have to have insurance for yourself, uh, for your conduct. Um, so if you go to someone's house and damage something, you have an insurance against that. Um, so I guess in the back of everyone's head here, it's like if I do cause damage to someone, if something does happen, there are safety nets in place. There must be maybe it's that kind of negligence uh, allowing it. I'm, I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to be too chuffed. Chuffed about your insurance if I get a firework in the face. You know, it's like that's kind of like the money's not really going to repair my totally smashed up visage. You know, so. So this is where we differ then, because I I remember when I I also worked at a supermarket for my sins, and I uh, ended up joining the uh, the union uh, there probably a waste of my time for how long I worked there. Um, but I remember being really excited about getting the list of how much every body part was worth and the difference if I was traveling to work. So I was like, yeah, if I lose a finger, that's like five grand. Like, that's great. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that. Um, yeah, that was definitely a naive uh, 16-year-old idiot. But uh, yeah. I mean, call me call me strange, but I want to keep all my body parts in exactly the places they, they, they've been for the last 37 years. Yeah, no, there really, really is not in my life. <laughs> Um, yeah. Vorkheim, wo sind all die leeren Bierkasten hin? I'll just wait for you to laugh at me. Love you, Roger. I'll get better, I promise. This is a story about um, in Vorkheim, which is just outside of Nuremberg, and it's a story about uh, missing beer crates. 
And the owner of a brewery uh, in that region, in that area, is appealing to the public to return their beer crates and their empty bottles because they're basically running out. I'm, I'm sure Corona has had an effect. Um, I, I, I'm not sure what the percentages are, but a lot of people would buy um, their beer as part of their weekly shop or they'll go to a specific like drinks market, uh, Getränkmarkt. And yeah, those kinds of... Yeah, I don't know how people are doing it, if they're preferring online shopping and having the crates delivered. But yeah, I think people are guilty as well of having a couple more than they would normally have in their cellar or in their kitchen. Uh, I know I've got two crates here at home from Chansonbroy, one that should be returned and one that I'm in the process of emptying. I think two is pretty good. I'm quite happy. I I don't think I'm contributing too much to the problem uh, with two casts. How many have you got at home? I think I've got two. They're from the supermarket, so they've not asked for them back. So when you when when you buy beer in Germany, you've got between I think twenty and twenty four bottles in each in each uh, in each crate. Supermarkets will sell beer, but often you'll have the supermarket on one side of the car park and a, a Getränke market on the other. And you go in there, and that's where you buy basically all your beer, all your wine, um, prosecco if you're feeling fancy, bottled water, fruit juices, coke, and all of this stuff is in a special sort of shop and uh yeah the, you 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 buy your crate you pay the fund which is the uh deposit for each bottle you buy the bottles you drink your beer you take the crate back uh and you get the fund back um and yeah that's the process and so you the, the whole thing relies on the customer taking the bottles and the crate back to the supermarket or in this case the brewery so that they can reuse the bottles or reuse the uh the crate the question i have basically is what do you use an empty crate a crate for like my crates in the basement are just like storage they're just sitting there because i've stopped drinking alcohol uh, as i'll promote again but so there's just like and just some crates with beers in them that, that, that haven't been used yet what are you using your your empty crates for? Well, we got uh, gifted a pretty awesome thing, which is basically a um, like a pillow top, like a cushion that you can just plug onto the crate. So your beer cast and your beer crate immediately becomes a seat. Um, so yeah, that's what we use ours for. That's it's like emergency seating for our balcony. Uh, so when the yeah when the weather was good, uh, going to sit outside on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, because of their shape and the structure of them, there's not really a huge amount we can do with them apart from things that are sort of square. Uh, so stools, benches, tables. Uh, you could, I guess, uh, do all your garden furniture with them uh, if you wanted to. Um, but yeah, logos are important, I guess. You want to have the right brand. Uh, this is the other problem. I, I love my Chantembro ones. The design's cool. I'm proud to have them, so I don't. I'm not in a hurry to return them. Um, yeah, I'm quite happy to have the souvenir. Um, but of course, this is this is the problematic side, and it does come down to to money uh, and recycling. Uh, of course, Germany is really proactive in recycling. Um, I remember growing up uh, here, and McDonald's used to have like six or seven different bins. So you had like one for the straw. Uh, one for the paper sheet underneath, and then everything was separated uh, by the customer. That's now all done by the staff or the p- packaging has changed. But proactive recycling is really key uh, to the culture. Now, the problem is that to uh, if at the recycling depots, if they get a beer caston, they've got two things to take care of, the plastic caston and the glass bottles. 
um, to wash everything, to take care of it, and to return it to the correct company, if it does have branding, is a lot of time and effort. And so what apparently is happening is that the recycling centers are just shredding uh, the plastic custom because they make a profit of 50 cent by doing that. So they're actually, there's, there's a financial incentive to not do it in the way that would return the product to the consumer. Uh, so yeah, the plastic waste, uh, unfortunately, is pretty high. Um, I don't know if these are then recycled into the next generation of custom. Um, but yeah, the example, uh, Mr. Schuster, uh, his company normally buys around 10,000 uh, cases a year. Um, and the, uh, the, the gross cost of that is about 10 euros, uh, he says. Uh, so, I mean, that's, yeah, 10,000 times 10. We're talking a lot of money. And in 2020, it nearly doubled. It says 17,500. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a huge outlay for him. And there's no guarantee that he's going to get 70% of that back. So there's a good chance he's just going to have to increase his order because things got shredded. Um, so, yeah, it's, it really it does come down to the responsibility of the drinker. We need to have this impressed on us that this is what's happening. I, I had no idea that the recycling was, was doing this. The other problem is, of course, the cost. The consumer at the moment, uh, I think the average fund that we're asked to pay uh, is €3.10, I think, is, is what it says in this article. I might, might be wrong on that. But €3.10 is, is not much to lose, uh, or if you like the crates, to pay for it. Um, and yeah, they lose money uh, at that price. So either there has to be an increase on the price of the fund, uh, or at least uh, sort of a push to make us more aware of this. Uh, and yeah, this brewery, have the, the only choice they had was to publish this on Facebook. Wow. Yeah, I feel like we're part of the problem. Uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that crate back tomorrow. That's, that's my plan. Man fined for breaking French COVID lockdown too. In quotes, smash a guy's face in. <laughs> now, this is not a story about Germany, but I, when Simon shared it, I'd read this article already. And I was like, I don't care if it isn't German at all. It is the best article I've read this week. It made me so happy to read it. Uh, and I'm just going to read some excerpts from it. French police have fined a man who left his home with a written lockdown declaration stating he was out to... Quotes, smash a, a guy's face in. The man who has not been named had reportedly correctly filled in the legally required declaration known as an attestation with his name, address and time he left his home in Lannion, Brittany. Sorry, French fans out there. Geordies don't speak much French, uh, so I probably butchered the name of that town. However, officers found that instead of ticking one of the boxes stating a legitimate reason to go outside during France's national lockdown, these include going shopping, visiting the doctor, traveling to work, or exercising for up to one hour at a maximum distance of one kilometer, the man had written, ooh, here's some French guys, get ready. Nick's going to speak some French. Oh, you're brave, you are brave. Okay. Uh, Allier... Peter Laguelle à un mec. 
Whoa, you did so much better than I thought you were going to do. <laughs> you smashed that. That was really good. Yeah, uh, an activity not covered by the form. So this guy um, uh, was breaking the COVID lockdown in France. He had his document to sh- that they have to sign to say why they're going out. And he had very honestly written that his plan was to go smash someone's face in. I don't know where to begin with how good this article is. It made me laugh so loud, and I know I shouldn't laugh at either breaking lockdown rules or the intention of causing anyone violence, but he didn't. He was caught by the police hiding behind a car. I mean, this is where it gets even better. Like We've basically just had the, the first three paragraphs, and then it keeps delivering. Uh, as you say, he was found by the police lurking behind a car on Friday evening. Like he's he's dynamic and he's motivated and he's waiting, <laughs> lying in prey behind a car. And then we find out he's drunk as well. <laughs> so yeah, as well as the hundred and thirty-five euro fine for having an insufficient excuse for being out in public, the man was also fined hundred and fifty euros for being drunk in a public place. I love this clarity of thought that he has, that he's like, I need to go and punch this guy in his face. No, smash his face in, I need to do. Um, but I need my documentation. Um, okay, look at the form. Shopping, no, it's not shopping, really. Visiting the doctor, he might visit the doctor after, but I think I'm good. Is this work? No, this is definitely pleasure. Is it exercise? Could be, could, could be exercise. But is it within a one kilometer radius? Ah. Shit, I'm going to have to pencil something in. And then he came out with that wonderful phrase that Nick masterfully pronounced. And so, yeah, this poor guy, not only has he uh, been charged €285 Euros, uh, for this infringement, uh, he could also face further fines on Monday uh, this week uh, after he uh, was discovered to also be carrying a flick knife. It's out of our wheelhouse, isn't it? It is France. But one of the things I always love, what you realise, I think, when you when you when you live in, in in mainland Europe as opposed to the UK, is how interconnected everything is, and and how and how there's many aspects of what you think are inherently British ideas, or even maybe you might even think they're inherently American if you're coming from the US. Uh, it's sort of just in the mix, basically. And when I read the story, I was like, one. This speaks to my German brain because the guy, the guy is just brutally honest about why he's breaking COVID lockdown. And then the British part of my brain was like, this is exactly what British people do. Very violent approach to, to sort of uh, everything. And so it was like a smash together and, and it's in France. And I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it is, it, is an, it is a planned assault and assault isn't, isn't normally the source of humor. But as you say, like, I read this with, and it filled me with this positive sense of a man seizing the opportunities and sort of trying his best to fit within the parameters that society was giving him. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's really charming. Um, I, I, I think if I was motivated enough to, to require uh, to physically attack someone, I wouldn't be this logical. Um, I, I, I respect that he was like, I need to do this. But the article treats us with an amazing close of a few other examples uh, of people being just brutally honest. And this does seem, I don't know if this is just the way it's written or the French are just honest when the police catch them. One man told officers, I'm fed up with my wife. I must absolutely go and see my mistress. Obviously, this is French stereotypes being brutalized here, but uh, it's still pretty funny. 
another couple said they were out to pick daffodils. Uh, the Welsh blood in my veins is definitely uh, supporting that. That's good. Nice on daffodils. But my favourite one is uh, someone who was stopped by the police after going shopping uh, and then were reprimanded because uh, three lemons for, a, uh, for an alcoholic drink does not constitute essential shopping. Um, I, I love that, though. I need these lemons. <laughs> my Negroni. My Negroni will be flavourless without it. It's just wild. And, and, and I think that, that it's, it, it felt to me like just a weirdly bright, like article like it just sort of it lit up as soon as i read it i was just like this is just it this is it for me this is maybe the best story to come out of lockdown <laughs> yeah weirdly the feel-good story of the week <laughs> so uh that brings us to the end of the show you can reach out and touch our social media faces via either at 40% German, which is my Twitter account, or uh, you can reach out to Simon at uh, Decades From Home on Twitter. Or if you have some exciting questions or comments or complaints about my terrible French, you can email the pod at 40%German at gmail.com. Uh, all that's left to say is thank you for joining us and we'll speak to you all next week. Uh, that's say goodbye. Thanks for Simon. joining us. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to catching you next time. Thank you.